All right, guys, come on in, grab a seat. We're going to continue our time together. We are in Colossians. Oh, hi, Graves. Good to see you guys. Right in the front, splash zone. All right. Well, hey, uh, again, it's good to be with you guys. I have missed you guys two weeks ago. Uh, we were away celebrating my sister-in-law's graduation up in Chico, and so it feels really good to be back together this morning. Like I said before, we're going to be in Colossians 1 this morning, starting in verse 24, and we'll head to Colossians 2, 5. This morning, we're going to look at Paul, and uh, in many regards, we're going to get to see Paul's heart. I think I've shared with you guys before, um, and actually, I've come to realize that a lot of people actually have probably a pretty unhealthy view of the Apostle Paul. Um, I've told you guys before that if Paul were around today, I don't know that we would be good buds. Uh, I feel like he would scare me, intimidate me, and make me feel guilty all the time. Um, and sometimes with a curse or a, a short or a, a really fast reading of Paul, you might miss out on some of Paul's heart. Some of Paul's like really clear love for his church. Not just his church, for the church. As we have noticed within Colossians, Colossians, the church in Colossae, is actually a church that Paul didn't plant. To give us a little bit of a refresher, Paul actually is preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And there's a guy named Epaphras who comes to know Jesus while Paul is preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And then he comes back to his hometown and he starts a church here. And this church is birthed without anybody formally overseeing it. And Epaphras goes back and forth with Paul while he's in prison. And he goes and visits and shares the wins and the struggles and all that's going on. And Paul then begins a relationship with this church in Colossae. And now as we see in this passage that we're going to walk through, we're going to see that Paul's heart is like so attached to this church in Colossae. He is, he is toiling and struggling and suffering even, even though he's never met these people. And there's something beautiful about that. There's something about that for me that's really encouraging to hear because sometimes I see Paul just as like this crazy intense church planter that doesn't matter the cost of anything and doesn't matter whose feelings he hurts or whatever. And there's more to that. Paul's like a real human being who's saved by the grace of God and who has begun to let the grace of God not go without effect in his life. And we begin to see that in a passage like that today. So we're going to see Paul's ministry to the church, we're going to see his excitement to share the mystery of the gospel with those in Colossae. And we're also going to see his heart for them. I love this. We almost get sort of a, another almost like vision statement of Paul's heart for the church. And so with that, we're going to jump into our time this morning. Let me pray over us. And Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. Like we prayed earlier, all of us are coming in with different amounts of baggage. And what I love is you don't invite us to pretend like none of those things exist. We, but we get to openly and honestly just bring them to the foot of the cross. And so, Lord, we bring our entire person. As Romans 12, 1 invites us to present our whole person, our whole bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship. So, Lord, we bring ourselves to you this morning. And we even want to submit ourselves to your word. 
We want to say that we want to learn from you. So give us ears to hear, give us hearts to feel, eyes to see what you are on about. For Lord, we want all that you want for us. We love you, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make, excuse me, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all are hidden, excuse me, in whom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. All right. So like I said before, before, I want us to see Paul's heart here. Here, Paul is sharing even some of his own experiences of how he is suffering and how he's rejoicing. Again, we've heard all of this before. We've heard... uh, when we face various trials that we are called to rejoice. Rejoice when you face trials of various kinds. And I think sometimes we can feel like that's just like a religious platitude or like somebody put that on a pillow to try and remind somebody of something, you know, at some point in time. But here we actually see Paul, who's in prison. He's awaiting trial. His life potentially could be coming to a close at any moment. And he starts off by saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's never even met these people before. It's interesting to me that he says that he rejoices in their sufferings for their sake. And what Paul is really doing is he's beginning to expand actually his ministry as an apostle. He's got an apostolic call to the Gentiles. And as he is taking the gospel to the Gentiles, he is suffering greatly. But why is Paul suffering as a result of taking the gospel to the Gentiles? I think sometimes we can lose sight of some of these things because oftentimes, especially in America, it may not feel like it costs much to be a follower of Jesus. But you see, in Paul's view, the gospel has been entrusted to him. And he has a responsibility 
to steward what has been deposited in him and the call that's been put on his life to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, specifically to the Gentiles. Paul's been beaten, imprisoned, stoned. He's been chased out of cities. He's been mocked. All of these things have been Paul's story. And why is he suffering? Because he is teaching and living an offensive gospel. One that's demonstrated in action and word. He is preaching and demonstrating a gospel that destroys injustice, racism, nationalism, slavery, sexism. One that is breaking apart the social construct which had been built for millennia. Paul is speaking against that. Not by saying that's bad, but by proclaiming what the kingdom of God is. The gospel that Paul preaches is one that cannot be added into somebody's worldview, but one which replaces it. And because of this, Paul suffers greatly and simultaneously rejoices because he has Jesus who is the hope of glory, the one who was, who is, and is to come. I love seeing this with Paul. I love seeing his heart, his affection, and in love being communicated through words on a page as he's awaiting trial. I love hearing, to some degree, a, a bit of his suffering. And even though I'm not in prison and I haven't experienced what Paul's experiencing, I empathize with Paul. And I feel like I can relate a tiny bit to what Paul is saying here. Paul, in essence, is saying, I am willing to suffer virtually anything so that you might know that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is real. I am willing to suffer that you might know that real forgiveness is available. I'm willing to suffer so that you might know that you could truly be known and loved, that you don't have to pretend anymore. I'm willing to suffer so that you might know that whatever might happen to you in this life, there is hope that goes beyond this life. And that hope is not a, a, a wishful thinking. It is in a person, and his name is Jesus. I'm willing to suffer because Jesus Christ truly did die and rise again. I'm willing to suffer no matter what the cost so that you might be able to taste and see that Jesus is good, that he's real. And on that end, to some degree, me and our elders and our families here at the church, we empathize with Paul. We can relate to him to a small degree. None of us are getting beat. None of us are being thrown in prison. But we love, in a weird, not in a sadistic way, to suffer for our families to take cost, if you will, so that some of you, so that some in Camarillo might come to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. I love what Paul's doing here. He's making it really clear that as we come to follow Jesus and then as we begin to help lead others in following Jesus, it comes at a cost. I'm not saying that my family and our elders and their families are uh, 
again, being beaten, thrown in prison, but it comes at a great cost to help lead, love, serve this family and community. And what brings us great joy, insane joy, is when one says, wait, God knows this about me and he still loves me? Or when we get to see a dad baptize their daughter and make a proclamation of faith and saying, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus and it's my desire to follow him for the rest of our days. Our elders and our hearts, no matter what the things that we've been suffering, we celebrate, we rejoice and are filled with joy and would gladly suffer again so that more of that might take place. I love getting to see this with Paul. I love that we get to see Paul say, that there is a cost to following Jesus, to proclaiming the gospel. There is a cost. And suffering does take place. And sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's time. Whatever it might be, there is a cost, but it is worth it. And we get to rejoice because we get to share in the mystery, which is Jesus Christ himself. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity around what Paul means when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We know that Paul has taught that when we're baptized, that we're buried with Christ. He has also taught that we fellowship in his sufferings, that there is a suffering component to being a follower of Jesus. Paul is sharing with the Colossians that part of the Christian life is to suffer in anticipation of Christ's return. Now, this is a tough theology for many people to wrap their heads around. An entire generation has struggled with God because they can't figure out how God could let bad things happen to good people. And for Paul, he's just kind of making it very clear. This is absolutely part of the joy of life in Christ. As Jesus suffered, we are honored to join him in suffering for the sake of the church so that God and his word can be fully known. Now, it's really important here that we identify that we don't suffer in the same way Jesus did, in the sense that Jesus suffered in for our atonement. We are not atoning for anything. However, just as being obedient to the Father at points in Jesus' life and ministry came at a cost, so do we suffer as we grow in living a life of obedience unto Jesus. Paul is building a case for something in these first few verses. He's not laying out a theology of suffering uh, in the hopes <clears throat> that the Colossians will believe something new, although that's a byproduct of what he's saying, but he's sharing his experiences and the reasons behind them so that the Colossians know what growing in boldness and maturity, what that costs. And he wants them to know ahead of time that it's worth it. I don't know if you guys have ever talked to anyone who has uh, lived a long season life uh, faithfully devoted to sharing the gospel with people or taking the gospel to people or discipling relationships or any of those things. But I'll tell you, I have not yet run into the person who has poured themselves out for the sake of others, specifically for the sake of the gospel. I have not run into the per that person at the end of their life when they've said, man, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't do any of that. 
What's crazy to me is I talk to people like my pa on his deathbed, or as I hear my, my Uncle Harry, who died overseas, still giving his life for missions, or, or when I talk to somebody, even like the Nordkas, who have just started their journey trying to reach an unpe- reach people group. I don't hear people say like, oh, I just wish I wouldn't have loved people so much. I just wish I wouldn't have poured myself out. But it's weird when we're in the space that we're in right now, we have such a tendency to want to maybe conserve energy might be the right word. There's almost this this move right now, and and, and there's some of this that's very much rooted in Scripture of, of making sure that we protect my time. And there's some great wisdom behind that. But what Paul is preparing the people for, because he's about to, in the rest of Colossians, he's going to invite them, not just to grow in maturity, but to expel themselves for the sake of the gospel. John Piper wrote a book called Waste Your Life. Or no, he said, don't waste your life. (laughs) But the the side of it is is wasting your life on the right thing. The, The opposite of that, that he's really pressing into. Pour yourself out on what matters. And we have a tendency to be on the side where we don't want to waste our life or we don't want to uh, neglect our children or neglect our relationships or anything like that, which is good. But then we have a tendency to have a glass full of water that never gets poured out and just sits there. And the picture that we get in Scripture is that we have an unending well that's bubbling up that we can be refilled at any moment. So the picture is, go expel yourself, pour yourself out, and watch him fill us up. Paul is being a good leader here. He's not hiding the fact that following Jesus comes at a cost. That leading and loving doesn't come at a cost. He's not just all sunshine and rainbows. He's very clear that it comes with suffering, but he's abundantly and overarchingly clear that it's so worth it. And I think that's something we have to ask. Is it worth it to expel ourselves for the benefit of others? To pour ourselves out? Is it worth it? We'll talk more about that as we continue going on. Up top here, when Paul references the mystery, I just want to clarify, uh, he's not talking about an ongoing mystery. He's talking about the mystery that the Gentiles are brought into the family of God, that the Gentiles now are, are part of the full promise of God. So as he's writing to the church in Colossae who are filled with Gentiles, when he's referring to this mystery up, up top in particular, he's talking about how mysterious and how wonderful it is that now you Gentiles, you guys are a part of this. Which, when I say you Gentiles, that's like us, by the way. Uh, like, we are a part of this. This is what Paul is so excited to suffer. He's excited to suffer and share the good news that not, this isn't just good news for the Jew, this is good news for the world, that we get to participate in this together. And later, this mystery is clarified, finding its full picture in Christ himself. Paul says, your power... Goes on to say, your power comes from God. 
Paul talks about energy that God powerfully works within him. You find that when you say yes to serving God and ministering to other, God provides you with the energy, the power that you need to carry out this purpose. One of our friends, his name's Jeff Vanderstel, he says, God will never call you to do something that he won't also give you the power to do. Now people will flip that and say, God will never bring you something that you can't handle. And that's just a, that's baloney. That's not true. God brings us stuff that we can't handle all the time. But he's built us in a way to ask for help from the one who is the helper. God will never call you to do something that he will not give you the power to do it. The caveat to that is, will you ask for help? Will you ask for the power or will you do it in the power of the flesh? Paul then goes on to explain the work that he is doing to help people arrive at the destination of Christ in us, the hope of glory. He says, It's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul is writing, warning Uh, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone in the wisdom of Christ that so ultimately they might present, be present everyone as mature in Christ. That's Paul's heart for those that come to know Jesus, that they would grow to maturity in Christ. That they would be complete or another way for, for that people would have understood this is that people would no longer be infants in the faith. This is why he toils and struggles. He toils and struggles that that those who proclaim Jesus as Lord might grow into maturity. So the goal is maturity. How is maturity going to come to fruition? How is that going to come to be? We're going to look at a few different spaces where we see Paul highlight things I think in this text that are important for us to understand of how maturity comes to be. A piece of that is found back in verse 25. To make the word of God fully known. Paul's heart desires to make the word of God fully known and this is still true today that growing in maturity is if we're to grow in maturity it is going to be imperative that we are growing in knowing the word of God. Honestly, we we live in such a day where we've never had more access to the Word of God and engaged in it in so little. And yet this is why Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer. I'm suffering so that you might know the Word of God. And when he says the Word of God, he's really talking about the story of God, the gospel, God's gospel story from creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, that you might know the overarching and and beautifully written story of God that's not just an actual story, but it's history. Paul is toiling and struggling, not just for the church in Colossae, but almost for the church of the future. That the word of God might be fully known. We must grow 
and being rooted and grounded in God's word. It is a foundation piece for us growing up in maturity. Paul goes on to say one of the other pieces of maturity or what it looks like to grow in maturity is that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Paul's next goal for the Colossians in every church thereafter is unity. Here he talks about their hearts being knit together in love, that their love of Christ, their love for each other, and love for the lost would bind them together. Paul highlights this in 1 Corinthians 13 as it's sandwiched between two uh, uh, spiritual gifts passages where he talks about if you have not love, you have nothing. That if you have not love, you're like a ganging gong or, or a clanging gong. Paul toils and struggles and is burdened that the church in Colossae might have their hearts be knit together in love. That their love for Christ, their love for each other, and their love for the lost would be something they hold with a closed fist and they never give up. Jesus himself prays something similar in John 17. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We need this. And I'm so grateful that we're part of a church family that by and large, man, God has built you guys in such a beautiful way where you guys are, are experiencing and tasting the love of God and putting it on display with one another. But we need to cling to it. We need to fight for it. We need to not assume it. Because after we assume it for a long period of time, it soon then becomes forgotten. And just like the church in Colossae, there are going to be plausible arguments that are going to come in that are going to try and build divisions or factions to try and get us to be disunified. And in the, church, in the case of the church in Colossae, the false teachers are already present. They're already trying to chip away at this foundation. So Paul lays that heart towards maturity of love and unity as an essential piece for them right now. He goes on to say, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. Paul again shares what his plan is. He struggles, he toils so that the Colossians and the Laodiceans would reach all the riches of full assurance. He wants their experience of faith to be full and enriching. He wants them to experience the assurance of understanding that he himself has found. This is pretty profound because Paul, if you, we know Paul's history, we know Paul's story, he comes to know Jesus in a pretty radical way as he meets him on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him as, as a bright light and voice coming out and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And it's at that moment where Paul knows with full assurance of who Jesus is and begins to understand what his call is 
in his life. When Paul talks about full assurance, he wants this Gentile community to be as assured as he is about his faith and security in Jesus. This would be huge for the Colossians. Because everything in their history, everything in their past would say, this gospel is not for you. You're not a Jew. You're certainly not good. You worship other gods. Your mom and dad have done really bad things. And you follow them in their ways and their patterns. And Paul is wanting them to know that they can be fully assured. That they belong to Jesus. He wants them to know the fullness of the mystery of Christ. That Jesus broke down every single one of those barriers and walls. That he broke down the racial wall. He broke down the massive chasm that existed between us and God and made a way that all of us, and especially in this setting, the Colossians, could taste and see that the Lord is good, that they could actually be forgiven and find their way back to God. The Colossians needed this reminder. And I don't know about you, but I know for me personally, I've struggled many times in my past of understanding or trying to believe that this gospel was actually for someone like me. Could good news like this be genuinely good news for someone like me? Because inside growing up, I felt like the song, A Giant Wretch. I was just so full of baloney. I was just pretending and I wasn't sure that a gospel like this was for me. And here Paul is wanting to encourage them as they grow in maturity to know that full assurance is yours as you grow in full maturity, as you grow in understanding the word of God, as you grow in unity and love. This full assurance that you are going to be assured and assured and assured and assured and assured and assured. Where are we to find our assurance? In Christ himself, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is Paul's way of saying there is an unending depth to the beauty, the majesty of Jesus. So these are some of the foundation pieces that Paul is laying down. He goes on to say this in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul's building a case for something that's already existing inside. And I, it's very interesting to me that Paul uses the phrase plausible arguments. He's not saying that uh, people are going to come at you with really stupid ideas that don't make any sense, that are totally foolish and totally erroneous. He's like, no, like people are going to come with plausible arguments to reason out why 
this gospel story is not real, what actually happened with Jesus' body. All of these things are going to come. There are going to be reasonable arguments after reasonable argument after reasonable argument after reasonable argument. This is why Paul is toiling and struggling for the church, is that they would be able to be so convinced, so assured of who Jesus is, that as plausible arguments come in, they're able to stand firm. He says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. As he says that, he's applauding them because these false teachers are already present. The plausible arguments are already all around. And, and already there's things that have coming where he is saying, I'm proud of you guys for standing firm. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encourage you, keep going. Paul doesn't just applaud them and say, good job. Now you can take a break, take a breather. And as we see in Colossians, this is just the beginning point. This is Paul's prep talk. Paul is laying down the foundation of why he's able to even speak into this situation. Because he's an apostle of Christ. Because he's been laboring and toiling on their behalf. Even though he's in prison and has never seen them. He tells them the things that are necessary, that are important. That is there to grow into maturity that they need. They need to be unified. They need to love one another deeply. They need to continually fix their eyes upon Jesus and know that there's an unending depth to what we can know, experience, and taste from Jesus himself. This is a call to choose Jesus, to press into Jesus. And the worship team, you guys can come on up. To be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus and be changed by him begin to do what he does. Going, growing in maturity is a difficult uh, concept, I think. You can't force anybody to mature. I can't force my nine-year-old to become mature. I can't even like will my own self to be mature. Maturing is not something that you can do by your own fortitude, but we can join God in his process Paul states this heart's desire that we would grow in maturity, that we would become complete in Christ. And in there, there's an effort that we are invited to join him with. And for you and I this morning, I wonder if there is to some degree an invitation to join God in his maturing process of you and I. And I think we can take those basic things that we saw from Growing fully in the word, in the knowledge of the word, engaging in this. Okay, so if we're going to mature, we should probably engage in this. So if we're to just get practical for a moment, like, okay. And I know this is like the broken record, right? Like, let's read our Bible. We have a CBR, Community Bible Reading, that we invite you to join us and be a part of. Where we together, we, we long to read and digest and love the word of God together. So we read the Bible Monday through Saturday as a community in our own spaces. And then on Sunday, we come together and we engage in God's word together. This is what we're building our foundation upon. And again, it's not just these words. It's rooted in the person of Jesus. But then we've got to put certain things into practice, like loving one another, being united together, knitting our hearts together in love. For to do that, we need to be around one another. We need to have opportunity to serve one another, living out the one another's of Scripture together. And then we're to grow in our assurance of our own faith. How are we assured in our faith? 
More often than not, it's not just by thinking the right thing. It's actually when we begin to step out in faith and see God show up. When I was prepping this message, one of the things that stood out to me like crazy was this part where Paul's talking about how he's toiling and struggling. I don't know when you hear those words, if there's certain parts of your heart that's just like, I understand toil. <laughs> I understand struggle. My kids are driving me absolutely crazy. When I think about toiling, this isn't personal or anything. Um, my kids are amazing, by the way, but they are a hard spot right now. <laughs> But there's parts of me that is toiling and struggling. And, and then I hear that from Paul and I'm like, yeah, I hear that, I hear that, I hear that. And then the interesting spot to me is that Paul says, I toil struggling with all my energy. No, he says, I toil and struggle with his energy. And you guys, I don't know if this is the main thing that God has for you and me this morning, but I just get this overwhelming sense that, man, we have to stop toiling in our own power and our own might, and we have to start toiling with his energy. Because if you're anything like me, toiling in my own energy and my own might, it doesn't get me very far. The only thing it does is lead me to a lot of repentance. <laughs> See, I'm dead serious. Like, you guys have no idea how much I've repented this week. A lot. But you guys, I'm so slow to ask for help. I'm so slow to ask God for his energy, for his strength. So if we have any hopes, if we have any desire, if we have any longing to grow in maturity, it's going to become through starting to toil and struggle with his energy and his strength and his power and not our own. So Lord, we come to you this morning. You know exactly where each and every one of us are at. You know when the word toil comes up, the gazillion things that come up in our mind. And so many times we find ourselves toiling in stupid places. And so, Lord, I pray for the stupid places that we toil. God, that we would hand those over to you. And God, so many of us are so tired in these other spots where we toil and we struggle, we're so tired that when we hear Paul toiling and struggle on behalf of people who he's never met, we're like, I, can't, I, can't, I don't have any energy for that. And Lord, you say to us, you say, come to me all who are heavy laden, heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and I will give you rest for your souls. And so Lord, we ask for that now. God, we ask that we could come to you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us yield our energy, yield our effort, yield our strength and the power of the flesh, Lord, and help us lean on your energy, on your power through your spirit. We're not talking some new agey, weird, mystical thing. We're talking about Holy Spirit who is given to bring power, to bring comfort, which you have promised to us. And so, God, we just appeal to you by your promise. Come, Holy Spirit, and power. Would we learn from Paul? Would we be encouraged by Paul? Would we begin to toil 
and struggle with all your energy for the sake of your kingdom. Be glorified now as we respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.